Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Breaking Britain podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Russell Foster, and by my very good colleague, Dr. Alex Clarkson. Hi. Uh, So, as you know now, uh, Breaking Britain is a podcast which is hosted here at the Department of European and International Studies at King's College London in the United Kingdom. Now, in conjunction with the Europe's Borderlands Research Group and the UAC's Limits of Europe Research Network, what we're doing is we're looking into the forces and the tensions which are holding Britain together and at the same time pulling Britain apart in the aftermath of Brexit, the most acrimonious constitutional crisis that Britain has faced since questions of political reform in the late 1820s and the early 1830s. So it's appropriate that we're joined by, we're joined today in this episode by a correspondent from The Spectator, a magazine founded in exactly that era of constitutional crisis and which has been publishing ever since. Alex Massey, freelance journalist and Scotland editor for The Spectator. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, um, as I say, uh, Alex, you're uh, you're Scotland editor for The Spectator, and you previously worked as a Washington correspondent for The Scotsman, and you've been a um, contributing journalist for papers which are too numerous to list uh, in a 50-minute podcast. But uh, the key ones, uh, you've written for The Telegraph, The Times, The Observer, Washington Post, New Statesman, Time Magazine, and The New York Times. And you're also, uh, as our listeners know, a regular contributor to uh, broadcast media, including Border Television and the BBC. So, obviously, um, this week we're getting a lot of uh, interesting news coming out of Holyrood in Scotland in relation to uh, to the British Union. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And I'll hand over for our first question. Again, thanks very much, Alex, for bringing this in. It's 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 a it's some, some some fascinating perspectives from just your long experience looking at these kinds of issues. And one of the things that I've 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 sort of wondered, just looking at from from an external perspective, but I think also something that many are listening to this maybe across the European Union and 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 other states in Europe who are not so familiar with dynamics in the UK are sort of interested in increasingly as as these issues become more salient is is the kind of different political cultures that don't just support independence. We hear a lot about them, particularly hear a lot about them in in, in various EU member state media. What's what's discussed a little less are, are the kind of political cultures that support the survival of the UK Union uh, in Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland, Russia the UK. And that seems to be often dealt with in, in EU member state media in a more of a schematic kind of way. Um, it's almost like the ind- pro-independence side gets the most interest because it's maybe the most voluble. So, so just from your own experience, uh, how do you think the political cultures that support the survival of the UK Union, how do you think they've changed over the last several decades? Well, I mean, the first thing, uh, and it's a, a big and important question, um, but I think one of the ways of addressing it is to note just how unusual the United Kingdom is. Uh, to begin with. Um, It really is very different from most other countries um, uh, because it is a multinational union. It is a state of unions rather than a unitary state. And within the UK, people are Scottish, they're English, they're Welsh, they're Northern Irish or Irish. Um, uh, And those are distinct strong senses of identity that exist importantly, and this is where perhaps they differ from, if you like, subnational groups in other European uh, states, they exist as um, identities of nationality 
not of region um, or, or anything comparable like that. You know, to be Scottish is a much more powerful driver of identity than to be Bavarian, for example. Um, and that's not to say that people in Bavaria aren't conscious of having a Bavarian identity, but they don't think of Bavaria as being a country in quite the same way people in Scotland think of Scotland as being a country. You know, Bavaria does not qualify for the Football World Cup, uh, admittedly, these days, nor do Scotland generally. But uh, but the point is that Scotland has an opportunity to do so. And that, you know, is an important thing, actually. It's, uh, you know, when you ask people in Scotland in particular, what is important to you, their sense of Scottishness is extremely important to them. Uh, so the UK is a multinational, indeed a multicultural state, even if it isn't always understood or thought of uh, in those terms, uh, perhaps particularly by people in London, people in Whitehall, people in government, um, who, who fail to understand that the, the, the UK is a multinational country. Um, uh, it's all complicated, of course, by the fact that England makes up about 85% of the people. And so it is not a balanced union. Um, uh, but nevertheless, it is uh, seen as a union of uh, a creation. Uh, so, uh, and then on top of this, and alongside it simultaneously, because this is again is where things get sort of nuanced and complicated, you have Britishness as an identity too. Uh, and lots of people buy into that, um, you know, across the UK. You know, you are Scottish and British, English and British, Welsh and British, Northern Irish and British. But it is not necessarily a, um, a sort of conflict between these two identities. For a lot of people who feel them, they sit quite happily alongside one another. And there are times when, you know, people in Scotland who feel both these identities will feel more British than they do at other times. Um, but they're almost always Scottish first. And so the United Kingdom or Great Britain and Northern Ireland as it is, it's a, existed in, uh, has many different starting points. You know, in one sense, it's 1707, uh, the, the union of the Scottish and English parliaments, uh, then the Irish parliament joins in in, in 1800. Um, but you can take it further back if you like as well to 1603, um, when James VI of Scotland becomes James I of, England. Um, and so, you know, you have a long, long history here of these two things, um, these two identities, if you like, not quite wrestling with one another, but but at times one is felt more strongly than the other. Uh, and what we've seen in the last 50 years, I would argue, and that's the kind of timescale I think it is sensible to look at um, here, we have seen a steady decrease, um, and here I'm talking about Scotland in particular, a steady decrease in the percentage of Scots who feel keenly British, or who feel equally British and equally Scottish. Uh, and some of that is, you know, there are certain obvious drivers for that and so on. You know, the, the Second World War and its memory was a great rallying unitary point. Um, the British Empire was a shared enterprise, uh, one in which Scots actually played a, a wholly disproportionate role. Um, you know, the East India Company at any one point between 30 and 40 percent of its secretaries, its writers might be from Scotland. You know, huge swathes of the army in India were from Scotland or from or from Ireland, in fact, um, the Royal Navy, likewise, you know, around a third of the sailors in the Royal Navy at Trafalgar were from Ireland. Um, uh, so, you know, the, obviously then more recently, you, you know, empire and warfare did an awful lot to hold the United Kingdom together to build um, the sense of Britain as a place with a distinct entity of itself that wasn't just an add on, you know, it, it, it was real. Um, but obviously time passes and some of these things become less salient, perhaps. Um, and that is, I think, clearly been the case in Scotland. Equally, you have things like the process of deindustrialization from the 1970s and 1980s, you know, that that had the effect of loosening some of the, the class-based um, ties that bound people in Scotland with else, other parts of the United Kingdom. You know, you had huge numbers of people who, who, who worked for, for British coal, for British steel, uh, for British rail. Uh, and suddenly all these things disappear. And so, you know, uh, a miner in Ayrshire um, who once had a lot in common with a miner in South Wales or on Tyneside, um, suddenly, you know, those bonds get severed a little bit. And what replaces them? And that as much as anything to do with, say, Margaret Thatcher's unpopularity um, in, in, in Scotland, which becomes a driver for devolution, you know, contributes to a situation 
where a lot of old assumptions about the United Kingdom, about Britishness, suddenly either no longer uh, apply quite so thoroughly, or at least, or they you get to a stage where people begin to question some of them. Um, and I think that, that, that there are lots of things to help explain all of this stuff, but those are some of them. Sorry, just a very brief follow-up question. I mean, I, I grew up in Germany. I had a British father and grew up in northern Germany, and we had this big British military presence. And one of my abiding memories of Britishness are the army bases. And and I remember also the 1994 um, SDR, you these strategic reviews that led to the gradual shrinkage of the army. And I was when you were talking, sorry, Russell, when you were talking um, today, I was thinking I've been spending last week reading the integrated review and, and the, uh, the defense command paper. And the gradual shrinkage of the army um, and uh, the merger of the Scottish regiments into this sort of amorphous mass. Uh, just a very brief follow-up question. How far do you think that particular loss of this military connection through regimental cultures may have played a role in this? Well, I mean, I think it, 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 it's it's not the cause of it, but it's the kind of thing that illustrates some of the, the shrinkage of, of Britishness in, in Scotland. Yes, it, it, it does. You know, when David Cameron became leader of the Conservative Party and so on, I remember he was uh, he was doing an interview with the Dundee Courier newspaper in, in Dundee and Fife and so on, uh, the traditional recruiting ground for the Black Watch Regiment, one of the most famous infantry regiments in the, in, in the British Army. And, and he, Cameron was surprised that the the fate of the Black Watch was some, was one of the first things that the Dundee Courier asked him about. Uh, he had not been anticipating that, he, um, uh, and so you, you know it's more generally that that, that uh, Britain's role in the world was also a gateway for Scotland and people from Scotland to make their own way in the world. I mean, my grandfather, for instance, left. Uh, school in in Aberdeenshire, aged what sixteen or something, with basically with no qualifications and so on, uh, and ended up going out to Malaya, where he spent thirty years as a rubber planter. Um, now, obviously, there you have you know the connection between you know, the, the opportunity afforded by empire there um, was was very important to him, and and something that that he felt contributed enormously to his British identity. Um, uh, there are many other families who have people who could say, tell similar stories. And that all obviously has, has gone. Uh, and in, you know, in part, obviously the European Union uh, from a sort of, you know, uh, thousand yard perspective and so on was a was not a replacement for, 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 for empire, but it was a substitute in certain respects in as much as this is where the United Kingdom would henceforth uh, plough its furrow. This is the role it would play as, a, as one of the sort of leading members uh, of the European Union. Um, uh, and there would be a, a degree of opportunity there, too. Um, now, Brexit, obviously, you know, suggests that song has come to an end and the differential between the, the Brexit vote in Scotland, where obviously people in Scotland voted to remain, uh, whereas overall the UK votes to leave, causes immense political problems in the future for the British government. Because, um, but it does so in a way, you know, uh, in in Scotland that it wouldn't. If say Yorkshire had voted differently from the rest of the UK, there wouldn't really be any significant Yorkshire independence movement. Because for again, you know, all that Yorkshire, you know, an identity that people feel um, and feel quite strongly within the within Yorkshire and so on, it's not the same it's not a national movement um it's not a national consciousness and so the you know as i said that the, the the story of the last 50 years has been this decline in the salience of british identity and so the question then becomes not so much of well the the risks of independence obviously remain a matter of significant concern but in a way that half a century ago the british state would not have had to justify its continued existence. Now it must make an argument for its continuing relevance and usefulness. And that is obviously a, a significant change because it gets you to a situation where, sure, the idea of independence is on trial, but the status quo is also on trial. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, well, yeah, as I say, that makes a big difference. I mean, it's uh, fascinating that you talk there about empire and the opportunities afforded by empire and empire as a, a shared enterprise, because this is a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment on empire and identity. I also like that you mentioned uh, Yorkshire there. Um, when I mentioned this upcoming podcast to an academic librarian colleague of mine at Leeds Beckett, uh, he pointed out that uh, you're the son of Alan Massey, who wrote all of the Roman Empire novels. So I promised I would name drop uh, Lawrence Morris at Leeds Beckett, this is turning into a radio phone-in show. So. I mean, in the period of empire, um, we're looking at you. I like this phrase of empire as a, as a shared enterprise. And it's in the period of empire that we get this sort of slow burn movement towards 
um, home rule for Scotland, which was a big issue in the late 19th century, then moving towards um, devolution by the end of the 20th century. And so we've always had this sort of slow movement towards um, greater powers for Scotland and moving towards independence in 2014, arguably the, you know, the, the culmination, the high point of this movement. And of course, we saw the referendum result in 2014 um, not enabling pro-union parties and pro-UK social groups to be able to prevent further independence movements. So since 2014, we've seen that the side which lost uh, the SNP, they've gained spectacularly in uh, popularity, in media um, power, in, in significance, while we've seen the Scottish Conservatives, Scottish Labour and the Scottish Lib Dems um, basically falling by the wayside. So I suppose a, a, a double question on this would be, why did the 2014 Scottish independence result, why did this not strengthen pro-union parties? And related to that, what are Scottish Conservatives, Scottish Labour and the Lib Dems, what are they doing wrong? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that should be fairly straightforward to, to you know, a, a, a very simple answer to that. And they'll, they'll be able to just uh, follow my instructions and, and sort everything out. Um, uh, job done. Uh, you know, you, you're again, I think a lot of people um, uh, in London, again, they, they struggle with the, the concept of the UK being, you know, not the Trinity, a sort of quartet, four in one and one together nonetheless and so you know so so um you know for instance you know you go back to the 19th century and so on you have um periodic um concerns expressed that you know scotland is being ignored scotland is not receiving sufficient respect or attention from westminster and so you know from time to time piecemeal reforms are are introduced uh not to buy people off but to recognize that so you have the creation of the scotland office the position of uh, the secretary of state for scotland is created you know um there's a time of a nationalist revival um uh, you know and all across europe and so on but it, it happens in scotland too but in Scotland, it tends to be more sort of cultural and historical rather than a political movement and so on. So you get the great cults of, of Robert the Bruce, William Wallace, the heroes of the Wars of Independence from the 14th century, of Robert Burns as well. Um, and you get little societies. So there's one, you know, the Society for the Vindication of Scottish Rights, uh, which is a tremendous name for, for a sort of agitation group, uh, is formed. And so, and these things continue. So you, as you say, you get, you know, arguments about home rule in parallel with home rule for Ireland leading up to you know, the First World War. Um, and then these, these are suppressed for quite a while in many ways. Um, and again, I think you, you could argue that, that, that it is the, the, that from around, say, 1914 to 1979, um, or uh, Britishness, the British state comes to the fore um, in ways that it wasn't really the case in the 19th century because it was so much smaller. Um, and then in the post-evolution era is, is not uh, so prominent either for various reasons of political architecture and personal identity affiliation and so on. Um, and so actually it's, if, it is, if you like, the, the middle part of the 20th century that is the exception. The, the, the union, which is a matter of identity, was much looser in many ways in the 19th century. Um, and it is looser again in the 21st century. Um, so it is the 20th century that, as I say, you could argue is in some ways the exception. And so that requires unionism to adapt. And one of the things it has not always been good at, I think, at the moment, particularly at the moment, is adapting. Because if unionism wants to thrive, and to have a future, um, it cannot possibly, and this may eventually get around to answering some parts of your question there, if it wants to, to have a future and so on, it cannot possibly expect to thrive if it pits Scottishness against Britishness. Because even people who are both, most of them are Scottish first and British second. Um, so that is that is one thing. Um, and what we see, I think, in, in London at the moment is a more sort of aggressive flag-waving form of unionism uh, in, uh, that doesn't actually understand some of the subtleties of uh, the situation in Scotland, where unionism has always had a nationalist component. You know, um, the 1950s, Winston Churchill, um, is campaigning in Glasgow and he says, you know, you should, Scots should vote Tory to maintain Scottish privileges against the overbearing, centralising ambitions of a socialist Labour Party. Um, uh, and so, you know, uh, 
you know, Churchill is there to, you know, Scottish solutions for Scottish problems, um, which becomes a long running theme, um, uh, and then adapted for, for, for by the Labour Party or taken up by the Labour Party. So there have been, you know, if you like, not necessarily formal devolutionary strains within all parties, but but a, a sense of Scottish distinction, of Scottish difference, um, Scottish prerogatives has been shared at different times by all political parties in Scotland. And that is something that is here to stay. Um, you can't unwind devolution. And it, But if you want to press the case for uh, the United Kingdom's continued existence, it is not a good idea to have a prime minister who tells Conservative MPs that in, that in his view, devolution is a disaster. Because even Scots who don't necessarily particularly like the Scottish Parliament or the SNP, they still don't like the idea of it being taken away from them or of having it somehow slighted or disrespected. And that, again, is the, a lot of it's about respect. I think one of the problems post-2014 for, for, for unionists was the, again, one of the problems was before 2014. First was that, that David Cameron and, and, his, and, and his colleagues in government never really took the referendum terribly seriously. They just assumed that it would finish 65, 35% or 70%, 30 um, in favour of the UK, that people would reject independence by that kind of margin. I mean, that was always, it struck me as a very fanciful proposition, a very complacent proposition. Um, it may not surprise anyone that David Cameron didn't do the homework. And then having won by 55, 45, they thought, well, job done and, and went home. Uh, whereas the SNP thought, you know, and the people within the SNP who remember t speaking to them before uh, the actual vote in September 2014, and, you know, they agreed that so long as they got above 40%, that would keep the issue alive. You know, there wouldn't be, there might be a clear result, but it wouldn't be a conclusive one. And, and lo and behold, the SNP stayed on the pitch for extra training, if you like, while the opposition went home uh, and, you know, cracked open a bottle of champagne. And, well, one thing leads to another. And, you know, you get to a situation where the, the future of the UK is provisional. It's it's unfinished business, whether one approves of that or not. That's just the, the reality. Um, so some of it is just simple carelessness. Um, and some of it is also that unionist parties haven't really found a way of expressing the value of union and unionism and the UK in ways that go beyond mere accountancy. You know, you can put a price on absolutely everything, um, but if Brexit, Brexit demonstrates anything, it is that the, the price and value can sometimes be uh, mismatched in, you know, that the one doesn't fit into the other quite, they're not evenly balanced necessarily. And if that's true for Brexit, you know, then clearly it, it can also be true for independence, um, which is why, you know, there are often actually quite startling, striking rhetorical similarities between the case for Brexit and the case for Scottish independence. Um, uh, I insist on that, even though, or actually, despite, because it annoys uh, partisans of both Brexit and independence to have these similarities uh, pointed out. But it remains the case. Take back control is essentially no different from Scotland's future in Scotland's hands. I mean, I've got, I mean, I'm, as I've just mentioned, I have a British father. I grew up in Germany. I spent my early part of my childhood in Canada as you notice from the accent, and my mom's Ukrainian. So there's got four identities right there, <laughs> each of them in with societies where the, the, the issue of unification and national unity were salient, and salient is part of my own political experience. And I remember in Germany, it was reunification, but it was traumatic. I mean, people in Britain don't understand how much of a shock Germans, both Germanys went through in the 90s. It was actually a very chaotic moment. And the center took it seriously. It made a lot of mistakes and took it seriously. In Canada, Canada almost committed you know, national suicide in 1995, also forgotten in Britain. And both in 1980 and 1995, the center, the Federalists, took national unity incredibly seriously. It was, it was essential. Ukraine, like my mom's family, I mean, I have family who went to war, right? It is considered, and what has always baffled me is how the center in Britain doesn't take it seriously. It's it's really I, this is something that's always I've never understood psychologically. And this is where growing up from another different place to come here as an adult, there's things that you don't get, and this is something I've never understood. And and that kind of leads to my that's why we're probably we're discussing with you and several of your colleagues, is because many in Europe don't I think necessarily quite understand. I have Spanish colleagues who are like, don't they see where this can go? And and people in London are going, 
you know, it's you know, it's just not 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 a big deal. And that's always struck me. And that comes to maybe my my question in terms of the fact that this is like a four nation in one, like England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And we've discussed Scotland a lot here. But if you think comparatively between what's happening in Scotland and Wales, Northern Ireland, and England, um, how far how far does do those who want to kind of save the UK Union, if you want to put it in those terms, face the same challenge in each of these four nations, or how far are these like four separate fights? being waged, which actually makes make it more difficult to come out keep this ship ship aligned and at least ensure that there's orderly outcomes at the end of this process. Um, I, th I think they all are rather different. Um, uh, Ireland is, as always, its own case um, in many ways. Um, you know, one of the great things about Scotland is that nobody thinks it's a cause worth dying for um, uh, or killing other people for. Uh, and, and that's obviously a good thing. Ireland's history is obviously rather more difficult uh, and traumatic um, and so that leads to a rather different set of calculations there but but what, actually what you have in 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 Ireland though you know if if, if people in uh, in government in London were able to, to sort of visualize it in these terms and so on they would actually see that Northern Ireland is a success for unionism um, it seems to be because it demonstrates, um, uh, despite all the shortcomings of the devolution settlement and process in Northern Ireland, it demonstrates the extent to which the United Kingdom is actually large enough and flexible enough to accommodate those who would seek to destroy it. Um, those who, or, or to put it less inflammatory, in a less inflammatory way, those who would wish to have no part of it. The, the actually, uh, and we see a bit of this in Scotland too, and a little bit in Wales as well, that actually, you know, the UK really is a relaxed and liberal country when it comes to its constitutional affairs. And this is perhaps partly because, paradoxically, you know, people in London um, persistently underestimate the threats to the UK's future integrity, its future existence. Um, it's perhaps precisely because they are so complacent that they uh, are able to accommodate really quite significant and diverging interests within the UK you know um, you know if you know the Madrid by contrast quite clearly cannot countenance the departure of Catalonia and uh, acts in a way that would be unthinkable for London to act vis-a-vis -vis separatist or secessionist uh, tendencies in the UK um, and so to that extent you know actually the UK really is that sort of expansive liberal-minded place where it is possible to, for everyone to have a kind of what I would term a, a hyphenated existence. Um, that is to say, you can be Scottish British just as e easily as you can be Nigerian British um, or, or Bangladeshi British uh, or Welsh British, you know, um, and that the UK actually has the ability to reinvent itself. As was seen with, you know, devolution to the smaller nations, you know, uh, more than 20 years ago um you know in scotland's case that that uh, again people people look at, at devolution as being a great big rupture but actually in many ways it wasn't it was much less of a rupture than or a striking development than many people say because uh, again forgotten about by many people in london you know uh, in terms of day-to-day uh, -day government Scotland was administrative devolution existed before legislative devolution. So, you know, the Scottish NHS was set up independent of the NHS in England, you know, in the late 1940s. Scots law has always been distinct. The Scottish education system and, uh, has always been different. So legislation passed in, in the House of Commons and so on would always have to have separate Scottish bits tacked onto it. You know, because it wouldn't otherwise it wouldn't necessarily cover the whole of the United Kingdom. So the UK's always had this sort of slightly odd structure. Um, but it, at the same time, it has shown itself able to evolve. The question for it now is whether that has reached its natural limit um, and whether instead you actually have a UK government now that is so suspicious of devolution that it would seek to um, either work around the devolved governments or in certain respects claw responsibilities and power back from them. Uh, you know, both of those are obviously a temptation for Boris Johnson's government. Neither, it strikes me, is likely to find favour um, in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and so therefore, you know, I, I'm not sure it's it's a particularly sensible ploy. But, you know, again, you know, the UK is so, so weird. Um, you know, we, you're right, people spend more time talking about Scotland than elsewhere. That is, I think, partly because Scotland is the indispensable part. 
you know, England can't leave itself. <laughs> um, it's 85% uh, of the UK. England can't really leave the rest of the UK behind. Wales um, is so much smaller the, it's, and its independence movement is so much uh, at a much earlier um, stage of the process. Um, and a lot of it's also wrapped up with uh, language, the Welsh language and culture there. So, you know, the lang la Welsh language provides an out a nationalist outlet, if you like, that doesn't necessarily require political accommodation. Uh, Northern Ireland, again, you know, it's a sense of uneasy equilibrium between nationalist and unionist, between Irish, Northern Ireland uh, uh, and British. So it is its own separate case. But, you know, since the Republic of Ireland left a century ago, the UK has survived that departure. It could probably survive Northern Ireland's departure as well. But it can't survive Scotland's. You know, Scotland's a co-founder. And this is how it's seen in Scotland as well. This is Scotland's always seen itself as a, as a partner um uh in in the union and scotland so so scotland is is a founding member of the uk um and in many ways the uk is disproportionately a scottish creation uh and so if scotland leaves then then all sorts of questions about the future of england and the rest of the uk um start being asked and all sorts of assumptions i think would have to be questioned and most of those are, are, are again i think ones that the people south of the border simply haven't really begun to have an inkling of let alone actually really wrestle with i mean speaking of those issues that um that we English south of the border um, that we tend to disregard or um, or dismiss. I mean, to what extent is this um, specifically an issue which cannot be solved by um, the current government? I mean, we've got, as you've mentioned, Boris Johnson's somewhat, how can I put it politely, cavalier attitude uh, towards devolution. You know, to what extent can these issues be better managed by another British government, you know, in the event that there was a different leader or a different party in office? Could a strategy um, be implemented in order to ensure that any crisis that comes from this um, can be managed in an orderly manner, whether it's independence, whether it's unionism? You know, what sort of strategy can a British government um, do to to provide an orderly transition? And, and essentially, I suppose a tack on question to that is uh, more blunt. Can the British Union be preserved? Well, I mean, the answer to, to your second question is, is quite simple. Yes, yes, it can. Uh, I mean, you know, um, in many ways, it has an awful lot against it at the moment. And yet, um, you know, the opinion polling in Scotland is 50-50, essentially, on the question of independence. And as such, nobody actually wants to risk a referendum at any point in the next 12 to 18 months. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk about how um, May's Holyrood elections may or may not open the door to another referendum. I, I would be astonished if it happens within the next couple of years, um, because the, the risks of losing for both sides are so great that actually they uh, um, they almost outweigh the rewards of, of, of victory. Um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, they, there's a general acceptance that you can lose one referendum, but you can't lose two. I mean, so the, you know, the Quebec is the obvious international comparator here. And so they actually don't want to hold a referendum until, you know, they, they are very, very, very sure that they would win. And so the referendum then becomes less to, to settle the question of whether Scotland should or shouldn't be independent, but to confirm a, a decision that has unconsciously already been made, you know. And that makes quite a big difference, actually. Um, uh, as to what the UK government could do, you know, yeah, I mean, I think it is quite clear that a Labour government is better placed to make the case for union than a Conservative government, particularly a Conservative government of this sort, uh, a Conservative government that has been defined by Brexit um, uh, and, and that has, you know, there's no way around this, imposed Brexit on those parts of the kingdom that didn't vote for it. Um, and so that gives a, you know, an obvious political justification, political grievance, if you wish to put it slightly more pejoratively, um, to the nationalists and allows them to exploit that and so on. It, you know, regardless of whether you're, you have strong views on Brexit or not, it is being done to us against our will. And that's a, you know, it's a fertile territory for them. Uh, the other thing is that a Labour government, you know, wouldn't necessarily be everybody's favourite. But it would be pretty much everybody in Scotland's second choice of government. You know, everyone can live with it. Um, whereas the problem with a Conservative government is that while Tories in Scotland are obviously, you know, perfectly comfortable with a Conservative government, the other three quarters of the population, you know, a Conservative government is very much their last choice. Um, and so it sort of inflames the situation.
Uh, so, yes, you know, the best thing Boris Johnson could do for unionism is lose the next election. And, you know, there are, you know, various conservatives one speaks to from time to time who who sort of will grudgingly concede the point, but then feel duty bound to, to, to say, well, yes, but that's not very helpful, is it? Um, and I, I concede it isn't very helpful, but nevertheless, it's how I, how I see it. Um, the... Um, you know, the other things are, I think, not to, you know, to actually talk about some other things. Um, the more, if you talk about the Constitution the whole time, A, you begin to see monomaniac. And while the nationalists can get away with that, um, unionism can't really, because you're saying no to things the whole time. And at a certain point, a certain, you know, that takes you so far, but eventually you have to start saying yes to something and, and proposing something. Uh uh, and so unionism, I think, can actually talk itself into a crisis um, uh, that is deeper than the difficulties in which it undoubtedly already finds itself. You know, it's it's a sort of you know the first the first first rule of unionism and so on is of unionism club is don't talk about unionism club. You know, uh, and then the the the, the other thing. I mean, again, this isn't particularly helpful. Um, but you know, a decade of, of popular and competent government and economic growth at three percent a year um, would do a lot. I think to, to calm some of the waters you know i don't think it's particularly um coincidental that a lot of the you know that nationalist waves in scotland tend to come at or shortly after moments of economic and political crisis for the british state um so the oil crisis in the early 70s you have nationalist surge in the mid 1970s that then recedes it's true um but then again you know industrial unrest and you know the 1980s and then the 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 crash in 2008 um suddenly the nationalist national you know the failures of the british state are a recruiting sergeant for alternatives um to that and and so therefore competence and a government that people don't have to like but they have to sort of respect um, or at least accept its ability to to pursue its policy agenda. Um, all of those things would help. Uh, none of them individually are likely to be enough, but but they could all contribute to a situation where it's not so much that independence is a good or a bad idea, but just one that isn't deemed necessary. You know, you you know, you need to defuse the bomb. Yeah, you know, if you view it, if you view this as a sort of unexploded bomb. You know, there are two ways of dealing with an unexploded bomb. You you can you can tinker with it. You can take the lid off and fiddle around with the wiring inside and all the rest of it and diffuse it that way. Or you can just blow it up in a controlled explosion, having moved everybody to a perimeter. Um, defusing it is much more difficult and perhaps riskier, um, but is in this instance going to be much more successful uh, than blowing it up. <laughs> you know, at the moment, we have a government that seems to think blowing it up might be quite a fun thing to do. Yeah, sorry, just to ask one follow-up on that. Um, I mean, you, I, I like this metaphor, and you're saying that uh, that Labour would be a better bomb disposal uh, expert in this case. But we've had so much discussion in the last, well, not even the last few months, but the last decade of how the Labour Party is becoming more and more split in England. And we've seen its abysmal performance in Scotland. And recently, we've had all of these discussions that without Scottish seats, Labour can't get into power. So, um, you're, you're saying that uh, that Labour will be better placed to uh, to address uh, independence, but without Scotland, can Labour ever get that? You know, is it a fait accompli that we're not no, going to get No, no, the, the, the Labour's road to recovery in Scotland starts in England, in my view. You know, if Labour can show that it can win in England, it will win. It will do better in Scotland. And in fact, we saw a little glimpse of that in 2017. Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, not very popular in Scotland, um, uh, not very popular anywhere, but not very popular in Scotland. Uh, but his surge in the opinion polls, you know, was enough to, to persuade, you know, suddenly Labour went from one seat to, to half a dozen seats uh, in Scotland. And it showed because because people were prepared to vote for Labour in England, people in Scotland are also more likely to give Labour a, a look. I mean, um, I remember it was like, you know, think back to the, to the, you know, here's a comparable thing. 2008 Democratic primary between Barack Obama, the outsider, and Hillary Clinton, the establishment choice. Uh, first two contests, as always, are in Iowa and New Hampshire, both white, both both um, states where vast majority of voters are white. Um, the third contest is in South Carolina, where, you know, half the Democratic electorate is black. And so the question for people in South Carolina wasn't, well, will I vote for the black candidate, Barack Obama? Well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I won't necessarily vote for him just because he's black. 
But if he can win white folks in Iowa and New Hampshire, then he's the real deal. Then I'll vote for him. You know, um, Obama's route to black voters in South Carolina started with white voters in Iowa. If you can persuade them, then people get on board. And some a similar dynamic, I think, is possible, not certain, but is possible for the Labour Party in the UK. Just following up that, the, the timeline you gave of, of, of no referendum in 12 to 18 months, I, I generally agree. The, 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 my caveat has always been with these discussions of timelines is I've, I've, I've analyzed and well, I've been in the midst of crises where people do stupid things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very, and where suddenly a timeline of 12 to 18 months suddenly becomes three to four months and everybody's scrambling because somebody does something really stupid and then throws 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 the dial in ways that, that discombobulate everyone else. And just looking at the current state of the Scottish uh, pro-independence movement, um, and I think it's fair to take the Greens a bit out of that because they've just sort of stat, sat outside of all these problems, but the Scottish National Party itself, there are these vicious infighting and internal divisions that we've seen unfold in the last two, three days, you know, almost the culmination of it with the Hamilton report. You know, I mean, how far does the, the internal dynamics, because I, mean, I know people on the SNP, probably you know far more, obviously. I mean, um, and some, it, you always seem to, I always seem to, have to sort of talk to people who seem really level-headed and know the score and are very realistic, but there's, there's something else going on there as well. So how how far do the dynamics within the independence movement in Scotland represent a stability risk, as, as a political analyst would say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, there is clearly that, you know, I mean, this is one of the other reasons for, for, for why, you know, the British government should just sort of back away and say rather less um, at the moment, um, you know, and trust that the SNP, you know, the biggest threat to the SNP at the moment in many ways is the SNP, um, you know, been in power in Scotland for 14 years. And all governments get tired and exhausted and run out of ideas um, uh, after that length of time in, in, in office. Um, there are divisions over the approach to the national question. Um, you know, how do you actually force the issue, even assuming you're in a position to do so? You know, it is worth saying that, you know, the only reason we're talking about any of this in many ways is because of Brexit. You know, that no Brexit, no plausible justification for revisiting the national question. Um, you know, after, you know, a handful of years, six, seven years after 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 a referendum. Um, but Brexit, you know, unlocked that door. But if you like, it unlocked the door, but it also um, created other difficulties, other obstacles, um, you know, from a simple logical point of view. Um, if it is an act of economic self-harm for the UK to leave the European Union, just on purely trading economic terms, you know, nothing to do with sovereignty or anything like that, then it must also be an act of economic self-harm and folly for Scotland to, to impose comparable trade barriers with the rest of the United Kingdom, where, you know, 60% of the stuff made in Scotland is sold elsewhere in the UK versus about 15 to 20% sold in the EU. You know, it's a much bigger thing. And then that's before you even get to the whole sort of unwinding estate that's existed for 300 years, um, where you have much greater um, ties, stronger ties, of, of, of kinship and family and so on, um, a shared history that you didn't really have in the same way with Brexit. All of these things become much more difficult. Um, uh, uh, and Brexit has created some of those difficulties, even as it, as it increases, if you like, or simplifies the political case for independence while complicating the practical case for it. And so that, that is obviously opportunity for, from a UK point of view as well, albeit it, you have to make that argument in a quite subtle fashion because you can't say, ha, 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 you know, Brexit has put you in a box from which there is no escape. Um, you know, you'll just have to sit there and, and deal with it. You know, that is not a, a sensible way of, of proceeding. But, but there is an element of truth to that, obviously. And so, you know, the... the the risk of nationalists overreaching themselves and getting impatient, um, you know, is a real one, I think, um, you know, the movement splitting, you know, I don't, I, I'm not saying that's likely or probable, um, but it has to be considered possible. Um, uh, and, you know, even if you only give it a 5% chance of happening, that's still, a, you know, a non-negligible risk, obviously. And all things being equal, you know, people in Scotland are quite attracted to the idea of independence. The challenge for the nationalists and so on is to get, is to persuade people that all things actually are equal. And so that means having good solutions to things like EU membership in the terms of that, uh, to the financial prospectus for independence, to questions over currency, over pensions, over mortgages and so on. You know, a lot of box ticking stuff in many ways. You know, it's not the not the sort of thing that people join national liberation movements and so on to to do, you know, is to, to develop pension policy. Um, but but again, you know, 
that is because this is a very different sort of liberation movement. I and mean, in fact, they you know, generally don't talk about themselves in those terms because, you know, there is no oppression from which Scotland is seeking relief, really. You know, no sense of, of, of genuine victimhood. You know, it's not like... You know, occasionally you get nationalists sort of talking about all the all the countries that have, you know, became independent after having been British colonies and so on. And so Scotland would just be like all the rest of them. And they say, and the nationalists say, and none of them have ever sought to rejoin, have they? And you think, well, yeah, but they're all in rather different circumstances. You know, you know, we were what we were the ones doing the colonizing. <laughs> you know, Scotland's not a colony. <laughs> so the situation is not exactly comparable. Um, but that also, you know. Is what you know. It's one of the difficulties for it uh, as well. You know, is you know the opportunity for or the challenge for unionism again, as I say, is, is not so much is is just to render the idea of independence unnecessary because there isn't a, a unifying national grievance that requires it. You know, give me liberty or give me death and so on would sound ridiculous in a con in a, in a Scottish context. I mean, speaking there of uh, of Europe, the EU, and uh, and what you were what you called the challenge to unionism. So, speaking from uh, from an EU perspective, what advice would you give to policymakers in the European Union about how to approach these sort of risks surrounding the continued uh, unity of the United Kingdom? Well, I mean, again, I suppose it depends on what is the basis from, you know, where are you starting from uh, in, in this instance? So, for instance, on things like security and defence, you know, there is probably a, an EU interest in the UK remaining uh, as it is. Uh, from the perspective of uh, Madrid, most obviously, but, you know, other, other countries too, um, you know, there is clearly also, I suppose, uh, an interest in... In the status quo prevailing um, so as not to encourage other independence movements. Uh, at the same time, you know, I mean, this is, you know, in 2014, every EU country favoured a no vote, you know, even in Dublin, you know, where people, you know, our closest neighbour, anyways, lots of ties between Scotland and Ireland, you know, people in the, the Irish government, you know, would not say so publicly, obviously, but it was very much in favour of a no vote because that provided far more certainty and, you know, you deal with the situation you know, and that is always preferable, however difficult or uncomfortable it may or awkward it may be at times that is preferable to to the known uncertainty of the unknown uh some of that calculation has obviously changed in some capitals i think you know you you have some european politicians who are obviously much more open to scottish independence now as a result of brexit but the longer we're the further removed we are from brexit i think that diminishes a little bit and i think also you know this notion the uh, you know, that, that Scottish independence and the breakup of the UK would serve the UK right for daring to leave the European Union is, you know, there's an obvious temptation for people to view it in these terms or to think like that and so on. But in the end, whose interest does that serve? It doesn't seem to me obvious that that serves the interests of the Dutch government or the Swedish government or the German government or whatever. Uh, so I think, you know, the broader answer to, to your question is, is that they should steer clear of the whole of the whole operation. And so, on. you know, obviously that at some point somebody is going to have to say, well, you know, yes, as a candidate for entry, you know, Scotland would be treated, you know, and there are lots of things in law and so on that would always that would make the accession process, if that's what Scotland wanted to do, smoother, whether, you know, whether... Scotland would want to join the EU as a full member is a different matter. Politically, it has to, that has to be, that's the simplest case for the for the SNP to argue, but but it means accepting a whole load of terms and conditions. Um, you know, there will be no opt-out from the common fisheries policy, no matter how much Scottish politicians say that there must be. Um, uh, equally on the question of the euro and so on, I'm not sure it's particularly clever ploy for SNP politicians to say, ah, yeah, sure, you know, we, 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 you know, we know that we sign up to eventually committing to joining the euro, but we're not serious about ever actually doing so. I'm not sure that that is the best way to advance your negotiating goals on a whole range of other issues. You know, to tell the people, the, the, club, the members of the club you're joining, that you're going to pick and mix in a very British way um, the the things you you want from the from the EU. So it might be that a Norway style relationship would be would be you know, easier or more suitable, at least in the short term for, for Scotland. So again, there's actually quite a lot of uncertainty there. From an EU perspective, however, I think you have to take the view or it is prudent to take the view that, that this is somebody else's argument. You know, um, it's no longer, after all, an argument within an EU 
uh, member state. Um, so you, I think you have to sort of stand back and say, well, you know, come to us when you've settled it and then we'll talk because otherwise it, you, you are interfering um, in something that isn't immediately your concern. I completely agree. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, it's missed in Scotland as well as England because the way in which the EU is discussed in both is, is doesn't necessarily reflect how dynamics actually operate in the EU. But there is very little appetite in the EU for another member that opts out. Hmm. I think that that's what really needs to be understood in London as well as Edinburgh. That if people want to join now, they have to sign up to the full package. That's the general pressure on yeah. the EU side. Yeah. Just just a final question: um, Is there anything we've missed? Oh God, I don't know. I don't know. We've, we've wandered over quite a lot of stuff, and I've, I've, I don't know how awful. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff to talk about here because you know it's, you know, it. This is one of the things again that the that that is curious about the the future of the United Kingdom is that it really is a a big question. Um, you know, the UK has been whatever one thinks of it, um, a significant um, operator on the global stage for you know, 250 years, um, one way or another. Um, the notion that it might cease to exist is a pretty big deal. Um, you know, um, it, it, it would be, you know, it is difficult to think of, of other comparable countries that have played that you know that such a substantial role in global history global history who have split up in recent times um that have also been of such lengthy duration as well so, you know you know the soviet union is a slightly different uh, uh case there you know um you know having, having been in existence for a much shorter period of time uh it would be like you know france splitting up um, you know, or the United States, uh, or, or whatever. And so, you know, so it is a big deal. Um, and, and as such, one would expect it to receive perhaps slightly more attention than it sometimes does. Yeah. But it's precisely because the UK has been such a fixture of international politics for so long that so many people think that its continued survival is, you know, or that the notion that it would cease to exist is, must be more or less sort of unthinkable. <laughs> uh, and, and yet, you know, unthinkable things often give way to things that become thinkable. So thank you very much, Alex. I mean, that's been a really, really fascinating talk. It's so helpful also from a very different perspective from some of the things we've had before. And it's been really useful. It's really engaging. That's a whole load of nonsense then, but different no. nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. And, so, and, and I hope this has been really helpful to our listeners, to our students, to those listeners across the EU. And hope you guys hear, hope you guys come back from us next time. So goodbye from me and goodbye from... Goodbye from me. And from Alex. Uh, thank you very Thanks much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye.